This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. I want to take your attention today to a passage in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. Uh, it's a, uh, and I, I thought about reading this story, and I'm not going to read the story, but I want you to turn to the chapter so you have it open in front of you, and you can kind of glance over it to remind yourself of this very familiar story. It's the story of Joseph, uh, one of the sons of Jacob, and Joseph's dreams, uh, and the uh, story of his brothers uh, throwing him into a pit and, and selling him into slavery. Uh, I, I've, I've been drawn to this story, and I think in the last, uh, this is the fourth time I've been with you in the last uh, decade, and uh, three of these times, so this is the third time that I've preached from the book of Genesis, uh, because uh, I've been thinking a lot about Genesis and about the fact that these uh, Old Testament narratives, you know, it, it, many times people say, uh, what are examples we can find in the Bible of good, solid parenting that we can emulate? And if you look at the Old Testament for those examples, you find yourself to be disappointed again and again. I mean, think of, you know, the uh, Abraham. I mean, Abraham had two sons, Isaac, Ishmael. The, the bitter rivalry between those boys destroyed his family. In fact, that rivalry is still plaguing the earth to this day. And, uh, you know, Isaac had two sons, twins. Uh, he was told Jacob would serve the older one, but he still tried to give the blessing of the firstborn to Esau. And uh, Esau consoled himself after Jacob got the blessing of the firstborn by promising himself he would kill his brother. Uh, broken story, uh, failure on the part of Isaac because he didn't love his son Jacob, he loved Esau. And uh, in this story, we have Jacob, and Jacob had all of these sons, but we have a, a favored son here in this story. So again and again, we look at the Old Testament, we don't find examples, and you think of others, uh, Eli, uh, the priest in Shiloh, who failed to restrain his son, actually fattened himself on their desecration of the sacrifices of God and abuse of the people of God. And uh, David, David in his response to his daughter uh, Tamar being raped by her, her half-brother Amnon, and David did nothing. And of course, we know the story how Absalom rose up and said, I will stand for justice, and, and subverted his father and sought to steal the kingdom. Story after story of, 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 of godly men, of Christian men, uh, men who knew God and who failed as parents. And, and Paul gives us a hermeneutic for looking at these stories uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, these stories were written down for our instruction. They were written down for us. We have these stories in exquisite detail so that we will not sin in the ways that they sin, so that we will remember that God is faithful in the midst of our temptations to fail as parents and that He will strengthen us and, and enable us to stand in the face of that temptation so we can fortify ourselves with God's promises. And, and so the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that even these negative examples can be uh, used positively by God in our lives. And so that's what I want to do with this story uh, in this very familiar passage. And of course, we know the story of, of, of Joseph, how at the end of the story, Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, you meant evil to me, <clears throat> speaking of his brothers, but God meant good 
God's purpose was to save uh, many people, and, and Joseph is simply affirming the fact that God is always at work. He's always at work in all circumstances for our good, for His glory, uh, and even though there are difficult times, and even though you and I are tempted to say sometimes, I don't get it, God. I don't understand what you're doing in my life. I don't understand how things are unfolding the way they're unfolding. I don't understand your purposes for me. I cannot make sense of this. Where's God in all of this? And we're tempted with all those thoughts. Yet we know that God is at work. And, and this story will encourage you with that. It'll encourage you with the fact that God is working even when you don't see Him working even when it doesn't appear that He is there. So there are three things I have for us this morning as we look at this passage. We want to look at the hidden ways of sin and depravity in this family. Uh, we also want to look at the hidden purposes of God, the purposes of God that are unseen by the family as those things are unfolding. And then we want to look at the hidden ways that grace works. So we're those three things. First, the hidden depths of sin and depravity. You know, we can look at this passage superficially and we think, I know who the bad guys are in this story. The bad guys are those, those wicked sons of Leah, those, those brothers that sold their brother Joseph into slavery. They, were, they, they cruelly allowed their father to think that Joseph had been killed by animals and torn apart by beasts. They were wicked, they were uncaring, and, and, you know, I know who the bad guys are. But as we'll see, they're not the only sinners in this story. And, and you know, I remember one time visiting, we were visiting in Bali, and we had a day to take a little tour, and we, we went to see this volcano. And, and at the time we went to see it, the entire top half of this mountain had been blown off by, by the volcanic eruption. But in the visitor center, we saw a picture of this mountain uh, before it blew up, and it, it, was, it was whole, and it looked solid and stable and, and, and immovable. But boiling and surging inside were these volcanic forces that eventually blew the whole thing apart. And sometimes families are like that. On the outside, they seem stable and secure uh, and solid, but inside there's turmoil, this boiling that at any moment could blow the whole thing apart. And sometimes you look at this story, and you look at the family in Genesis chapter 27, the Jacob's family, and you look at it superficially, and they don't look too bad. But as you look more deeply, you see broken relationships, see deep feelings of hurt and mistrust that lie beneath the surface. And Jacob's family is like that. If you look more deeply, you see the hidden paths of sin that are at work in this family and in its history. You might remember that Joseph's father, Jacob, uh, grew up as a twin. Uh, I alluded to that a moment ago. He, he was a twin with his brother Esau, he, but Jacob grew up without the love of his father. In fact, the Scripture tells us that, that uh, Jacob, or Isaac loved Esau. He did not love Jacob. And Jacob grew up without the love of his father. He grew up in the shadow of his, of his brother Esau. He, he grew up with this inner emptiness and longing to, for the love of his father and his father's esteem. And when, as a young adult, he met Rachel, this beautiful woman who was lovely in form and beautiful, he thought, if I had Rachel, 
I would live. If I had Rachel, my life would come together. If I had Rachel, I would have joy. And so he, he gave himself to that relationship. And when he lost his wife, Rachel, in childbirth, he poured all of his love on her, her first son, on her, her son, Joseph. And he spoiled his son, Joseph. Uh, Joseph became the emotional center of his father's life. Jacob lavished gifts on Joseph. He, he pampered him. He gave him special treatment. Uh, and, and his blatant spoiling of his son Joseph produced incredible tensions in this family. And those tensions are, are, are described for us somewhat in this story in chapter 37. Remember that jo Jacob bought Joseph this a many-colored coat. Uh, that's the way it's translated in King James, and it's great fun for, for Sunday school classes because the kids can put these many-colored pieces of paper or color the coat with many colors, but it, it, no one's exactly sure how to translate the Hebrew uh, statement here. I remember studying this in seminary in Old Testament Hebrew class, and our professor, who was an expert in many Semitic languages, was of the opinion that Really what was being described here was a coat with long sleeves. It was a coat of authority. It was a coat of an overseer. Because who wears long sleeves? It's the person who is overseeing and watching the others work. The workers roll up their sleeves so they're not impeded to, in order to do the work. The coat that Jacob bought for his son was a coat that was designed to set his son apart from his brothers as an overseer, as someone who was in charge as someone who, who could, who would do the the uh, who would observe the work of the others. It's the coat that should have been in the customs of the day should have been given to the elder brother in the family, who would be the inheritor of the father's estate. And this passage is very clear in its assessment of of the foolishness of Jacob's indulgence of himself in spoiling his son Joseph. Verse 4 tells us about the damage that's done in spoiling a child. Verse 4 says that, and provides insight into the effect it has on other children because not only is the child who is spoiled damaged, the other children in the family are damaged as well. And it says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And of course, when a child is spoiled, the problems go much deeper than just the impact on the spoiled child. The whole family system is damaged and, and affected, and the hatred of Joseph's brothers for him was, grew in proportion with the way that his father spoiled him. And the entire family was damaged by this. It threatened to ruin Joseph. It provoked his brothers into being evil and cruel men. And, and, and they indulge their passions without regard for how wicked and cruel their behavior was. You might remember their, uh, their over-the-top response in chapter 34 of Genesis to the, to the slaughter of Shechem uh, after their sister Dinah had been violated. And they went in and they slaughtered Shechem and killed all the men and, and the boys and carried off the, the, the wealth of the city as, as plunder. And while, while obviously these men are responsible for their choices and their decisions and the wicked things that they did, they were 
provoked to wrath by their father who was spoiling their brother. He truly provoked them to wrath. And you see the patterns of, of idolatry and sin here. You have, so you have Jacob who never had the love of his father. This unloved man finds a woman he thinks will make him happy. She dies in childbirth and he finds comfort for himself by overindulging her son even to the ultimate destruction of his family. Foolish choices on the part of a dad. Destructive patterns of sin and, and self-indulgence. And if we read the story more deeply than just the Sunday school versions of the story that look at it very superficially, we see the effects of the spoiling on Joseph. Joseph becomes this very unattractive figure Verse 2 says he brought his father's a, a, a bad report about his brothers. And when you read that, you think, oh, well, they were doing something wrong, and he snitched on them. But actually, the, the Hebrew word that is translated here, bad report, is a report that is an embellishment or perhaps even a lie. It's a report that is, that is spun in such a way to, to make his brothers look bad. If you read between the lines, you, you see what happens here. Here's a, a spoiled young man who's pampered by his father, who's exempted from the family work, who, who is uh, sent out to report on his brothers and check up on them. And he becomes this very unattractive figure, this, this overindulged, distasteful person who's a self-righteous busybody telling on others and, and who's insulated from ever getting into trouble because he's father's fair-haired boy. I think if we read this narrative with depth and with perception, we realize that there are hidden pathways of sin and depravity and wickedness riddled all through this family. And the dreams give us further insight into Joseph. He has this dream of the sheaves bowing down to him. And the meaning of the dream is obvious that uh, his brothers will bow down to him, and he has the hubris to tell them about the dream, to announce the dream. And then when he has the, the next dream, uh, he announces it at the breakfast table. I had another dream. This time, the stars were bowing to me, and the moon and the sun were bowing to me also, meaning his father and her and, and the other wife, Leah, as well. And, and, and you get a, a sense of... of um, of, of Jacob's uh, impatience with, with Joseph in the fact that he rebukes him. And in verse 10, he rebukes him for that dream. And for their part, of course, the brothers show their patterns of sin and depravity. Uh, in the space of three verses, uh, we're told, uh, eight verses, excuse me, we're told three times that they hated their brother. They were jealous of him. They, they despise him. We can only imagine how he was an object of their derision and mockery and loathing. Now, on the outside, this family might look prosperous and successful and solid, but well-established, but underneath, it's a ticking time bomb. There are hidden pathways of sin, idols of the heart, depravity, brokenness that is ready to blow this family sky high. Can I say just parenthetically, make an observation about spoiling children. Spoiling children is the bane of contemporary culture. Preferential treatment of children, insulating them from the responsibilities that they ought to bear 
is spoiling a child. And we see that in this story. Joseph is exempted from the work. The brothers are out in the field working. Joseph is exempted from the work. He's wearing his coat of authority. They were working hard. He's sent out to check up on them. And I want to make this note. Parents who spoil their children are not loving their children too much. Parents who spoil their children are loving themselves too much. There's a payoff for the parent in spoiling the child. Because the parent is finding joy in this child and joy in being the person in this child's life who brings happiness to them and makes them happy, who's indispensable for their happiness and for their joy, who makes life work for the child. And the parent is looking for that, that payoff. And it's not only mothers who do that, dads do it as well. Sometimes we spoil children because we're trying to assuage the guilt we have over our neglect of them. We know we're not spending enough time in nurture. We're not spending enough time in, in, in uh, caring for our children. And so we, we work off the guilt by overindulging the child. And you bring a child gifts, and the child loves the gifts, and you have a sense of, of happiness and feel close. It's really a cheap substitute for real relationship. It's overindulging the child. And one of the subtexts of this story, I think, that I want us to see, too, is how different the gospel is from religion. Because if you read these Old Testament narratives looking for noble people who lived wisely and who did the right thing, who we should all emulate, you're going to be very disappointed in the Old Testament narratives. Because what we find is the Bible is shockingly honest about sin and depravity. The Bible is shockingly honest about brokenness and about what happens when people live uh, away from God. And the, these stories are not stories of noble, good people who we ought to emulate. They're stories of broken people who God delivers in incredible mercy from themselves and from their own patterns of sin. And the Bible doesn't present to us a series of steps that you have to follow in order to come near to God and have God be happy with you. The Bible presents a story of human brokenness and neediness and depravity that is overcome by the gracious mercy and goodness of God. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of this story. In spite of the the sin and failure of Jacob, in spite of the, the ways that Joseph responded as an overindulged child, in spite of the wickedness and depravity of his brothers, God is at work bringing grace to this family. And he's overwhelming them with grace in spite of their sin. And it really encourages us with the way that, that, that Christianity works because grace breaks in and rescues people in spite of themselves. Religion is about change that comes from the outside and you obey, you do the right things, God will like you and accept you. The gospel changes from the inside out because God has taken the initiative to show mercy and invaded your life with His mercy and His grace. You live to praise Him out of gratitude and thankfulness for all that He has done because He's melted your heart with grace. That's, that's the story of the gospel. And that's the story that I want for us to see in this, in this chapter. So we have the hidden ways of depravity and sin all riddled through this family. There are no sinless people in this story. 
but we also have the hidden plan of God. Because when we read these dreams, we get the idea that Joseph is going to be over his brothers, and that in God's purposes, he's going to be the one who will, who will lead the family. But we miss the radical nature of these dreams because they don't subvert the mores of our culture. But in ancient Israel and in ancient times, the law of primogenitor was supreme. And that meant that the eldest was always the one who was elevated. The eldest would, the, 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 uh, the children would serve their parents even into adulthood. The eldest son, uh, the younger sons would, would pay homage to the eldest son. And when the father would die, the eldest son would receive the lion's share of the inheritance of the family. And of course, one of the reasons for that is if you had a large family like this one with many sons, uh, if they all divided the inheritance equally, it would dissipate the, the fortune of the family. So it would all go to the eldest son, and the family would still have this wealth and maintain their place and their status in the community. So these dreams that Joseph has of his brothers bowing before him are against the culture, they're contrary to the culture, that God would work through a younger son and make him a, con a conduit of God's blessing to the family and even salvation of the family was impossible for these people to conceive of. But unknown to this family, God has a plan that is hidden from the family. He's going to deliver them from the famine. And there's even more. He's going to bring them through the fires of affliction and it put this entire family through trials that are going to be used by God to refine them and change them and transform them. And God is going to, to humble them. Joseph himself is humbled through the trials that he has to endure. The brothers are humbled through the famine and the difficulties that they have to endure. We would never choose trials as a means of grace. But in God's hidden plan, that's how grace works. God uses trials. He uses difficulty. And, and things don't work the way we think they would work. And the gospel up is down. Uh, humility is the way of exaltation. The, the weak be, are, are strong. The unlovely are loved. The broken are mended. The leader is a servant. The, the sinners, sinners are justified. Jesus dying on the cross uh, defeats the devil who wanted him on the cross. Nothing works the way we would think it ought to work. And the family is outraged by Joseph's claims. But God has a plan to save his people, and he does this by turning on its head all the world's ideas of how things ought to work. And I want to make a couple observations, three observations from this, about this, this section of the, the, the story. Uh, in this story, there's a, se a set of events that are seemingly random events. But they're all sovereignly arranged by God. And God is working out a plan of, of, of excellence and complexity and beauty that makes you have to admire the architect and what God is doing here. So Joseph goes to Shechem to see how his brothers are getting along. He gets there. He can't find them. But there just happens to be a man who is there, a stranger, who overheard some men talking about going to Dothan. So he goes to Dothan, uh, which just happens to be an out-of-the-way place. Anything that happens in Dothan is not going to be noticed. He gets there, 
they see him coming. They decide to kill him. But Reuben just happens to be there to rescue him from death, and he's thrown into a pit. Reuben has plans to send him back to his father. But it just so happens that slave traders come along on their way to Egypt. The brothers, Reuben is not there. The brothers sell him into slavery. And it just so happens that the, there's a man of influence in Egypt who has influence with Pharaoh, and he just happens to need a household servant, and it just so happens that Joseph is the one that becomes his household servant. Now think about all the things that have to work together in order for this plan to work out. All the contingencies, all the things that look to us like random events, but all the people have to be in just the right place, say the right thing at the right time in order for this story to work out because God has a plan to save them and to rescue them. And for that plan to work out, everything has to fall into place so that just as luck would have it, everything works out. And Joseph is in Egypt and has influence when the famine comes to Egypt. I say as luck would have it tongue-in-cheek because we know it's not luck at all. It's the sovereign purpose of God. It's God rescuing this family in spite of their sin, in spite of their failure, because He has purposes and grace. And so this plan has to come together. If the plan doesn't come together in the right way, everybody in the story dies. In fact, if you think about it, if the plan doesn't come together in the right way, the messianic line dies. And the promises made to Abraham prove to be untrue, and everything is lost, even our salvation in Jesus Christ. The plan has to work out perfectly. And what seems to be random events are God working in marvelous ways under the scene. It's very interesting. The narrator doesn't tell us what's happening. In fact, in this story, the work of God is not seen. The story is like your life and my life, because often in our lives, we don't always see God's work. We don't always know what God is doing, and there are elements of this story that are confusing, elements that are sinful. Wicked things are done and said. It seems chaotic, seemingly random, but God is at work in all these things, even down to the most infinitesimal detail of this story so that everything in the plan comes together in the way that God has purposed. And we have to wait for the end of the story, for the narrator to pull the strings and enable us to see that God has been working to plan through this whole thing to bring about the salvation and deliverance of His people. I want you to get a hold of this truth, brothers and sisters. One of the, in one of the most powerful demonstrations of God's sovereign power and saving grace, the narrator never mentions the name of God. Why is that? See, I think it's because it's the way that God works. God is there even when it doesn't seem to us like He is there. Even when it doesn't seem like he is working, even when things seem to be random, even when things seem to be chaotic, even when things seem to be careening out of control, 
even when it seems that God is absent, He's present all the while. And He's present putting all the elements of life exactly the way that He wants them to be. He's doing that now in your life. Putting all the elements of your life together in just the way that He has ordained. Some of those things are going to make you uncomfortable. In some of those things, you're going to be sinning. You're going to be sinned against. But God is at work in all these things to, to accomplish His everlasting purposes in your life. And in this story, even though God is not named, God is present. God is working. He's working unseen. And there's a third takeaway for us here, that God's purposes are no less being worked out in times of tragedy and suffering than in times of great pleasantness and blessing. I mean, look at the horrible things that happen in this story. If you were to see a vivid cinematic portrayal of this story, there are elements in this story you would want to turn your face away from. When they say they stripped him of his robe, it's interesting. The Hebrew word that's used here is the word that's used for skinning an animal. They skinned him of his robe. This was a violent uh, tearing away of the robe like you would tear the hide off of an animal. It was an unpleasant scene. They didn't even give him the dignity of disrobing himself. And they threw him into the pit, probably naked. It might be better translated, they dumped him into the pit because the word that's used here to describe them throwing him into the pit is a word that's used of dumping a body into a hole, not a ceremonial burial, but just dumping a, a body of a person or animal into a hole to bury it. It was a violent scene. And his body was abandoned to, to certain death. Later in chapter 42, we're not told this in 37, but in chapter 42, we're told that Joseph was in distress, pleading for his life. If you had seen this scene, you would have seen this boy pleading, pleading with his brothers. And these men were vicious, cruel, violent men. And he was pleading. These were not gentle souls. These were the men that went through Shechem like ISIS and destroyed everybody in the entire city. They were vicious, cruel men. And he was pleading for his life. They threw him into pit and abandoned him there. They were cruel and abusive. Where's God? Oh, he's there. He's there. He's working out a plan. He's working out a plan that will sometimes make the people in this story very uncomfortable. It'll sometimes bring the people in this story through pain in their lives, but he's there. He's working good, even through what the actors in the story intended as evil. God is working good, and he does it in such a manner that he is never himself the doer or actor of evil. It's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. How God can be absolutely sovereign, even over the wicked acts of wicked people, and not be a doer or actor of evil himself. How he can be absolutely sovereign even over the wicked acts of wicked people and those people are not puppets being moved about by a string, but they are choosing, responding people who are volitionally making choices that are real and valid choices. We can't wrap our minds around that. But we can assert that both things are true. 
that God is in control of all things, even the wicked acts of wicked people. God is never an actor or doer of wickedness or sin. And people make real and valid choices. I can't wrap my mind entirely around that. But I console myself with the fact that I'm trapped in my finitude and I have a God who is infinitely glorious and marvelous. So I ought to expect that I'm going to be stuck sometimes not being able to fully scope out what he is like and what he does. But the confession of faith gives us a very interesting statement. It says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by a wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all the things that will come to pass. And yet God is neither the author of sin nor has any fellowship with sin, nor is violence done to the will of the creature or the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things and his power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Everything in the story had to happen exactly as it happened and, and it was because it was only through these circumstances that Joseph would be delivered from his pride and self-righteousness and become a humble man of dependence on God. God was at work in Joseph through this story. He's at work in Joseph through the humiliation that he is brought through in the story. So that the pit, Potiphar's house, the prison, it's all part of the refining fires for Joseph. Joseph had to be humbled by God. He had to be lost and abandoned in order to serve his family. He had to experience the mockery and derision and cruelty of his brothers in order to bring blessings to multitudes. And someone here might be thinking, I could write a better story than this. I've seen It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. And, you know, uh, Clarence could have come along at just the right time. And uh, a bell would have rung and people would have all apologized to each other and hugged it out and everyone would have lived happily ever after. That's not the way change takes place. See, people, people experience lasting change when, when God brings them to the end of themselves, when they're convicted of their sin and their, their need, when they repent, when they believe, and, and when they cast themselves on God, and when God works His grace and His power within them, change happens when our hearts are melted by God and by God's grace, when we come to the end of ourselves and realize I have nothing to hope in other than God, that's when change begins to take place in our lives. And here's the point. God is working things out, but He's working, He's orchestrating things in a way that will work out a plan that is brilliantly conceived from beginning to end and, and will continue to bless people even down to the blessings that we enjoy today. God is working for our good. This is our story. God is working for our good, even here in Genesis chapter 37, to bring His Messiah and the ultimate deliverance of His people through Jesus Christ, His Son. It's interesting, the story takes place in Dothan. Dothan is only mentioned two times in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 37, Dothan is an out-of-the-way place uh, that is remote. Uh, centuries later, it's a populated city. 
And you might remember that in 2 Kings chapter 6, Dothan is under siege from Assyria. And the Assyrian army has surrounded the city of Dothan. And Elisha's servant comes to Elisha and he says, we're doomed. They've outnumbered us. They've surrounded the city. And Elisha says, no, no, no. There are more with us than there are with them. Remember, he prays, and he prays that God would open the servant's eyes, that he would see the true reality. And the eyes of the servant are open, and he sees the, the, the surrounding hills are filled with the angelic hosts and chariots of fire. Now, here's the question. In which story is God present? When Jacob in Dothan, is pleading with his brothers not to harm him. They cruelly strip him of his clothing and throw him into a pit. When Elisha prays, they see the city surrounded by angelic hosts and chariots of fire and the armies of the Lord. Which time is God present? He's present both times, isn't he? He's present in both circumstances. Now, second. Kings chapter 6, we would describe as a marvelous answer to prayer. But in reality, God is at work in, in the earlier story too. Remember Peter in the book of Acts? He's imprisoned. His, his friends pray, and an angel is sent into the prison, delivers Peter from prison. John is in prison. His disciples, we assume, would have prayed for him, and John's head is given to a young girl for dancing a dance that pleased Herod. Which time is God present? God's present in both circumstances. Do you know the story of the uh, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the, uh, in the 1950s they went to, to the Aka Indians in, in Ecuador to make an advance to them with the gospel and and these five men were all slaughtered. In that same period of history, Harry Ballback, one of the founders of Word of Life, went to the Savanti Indians, very similar Indians living in Stone Age conditions, never having had contact with the West. They made the same kind of approach to the Savante, and the Savante re- received them. Now, the interesting thing in that story is after Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the others were killed, the Aka Indians were redeemed, came to faith in Christ. And there's a massive work of God amongst the Aukas. Harry Ballback and his friend Harold, I forget his name, went to the Savante. They survived, and God brought salvation to the Savante too. In one circumstance, the servants of the Lord died. In the other circumstance, they were preserved. In both circumstances, the gospel prospered amongst the people to whom they went. God was working out a plan. Sometimes that plan is a very, it's a plan that gives us joy, and we find great comfort. And here's my point. I mean, if you're you're in trouble, pray by all means. (laughs) But in humility, recognize God is working out a plan, and sometimes the plan is the pit. And sometimes the plan of God is armies of angels and, and chariots of fire. Now, we all like armies of angels and chariots of fire better than the pit. But in either circumstance, God is at work. He's orchestrating all things. He's working out His plan for our good, for His glory. He's at work in all things. He's doing that right now in your family. He's doing that in your, in your home. Even your, your moments of greatest suffering are moments 
uh, in which God is at work. You're, you're perplexing problems that you can't seem to shake. God is at work in your family. God is working out His glorious plan. And if you understand that, you can face anything because whatever God brought to Joseph, God brought in order to make him stronger. God brought in order to refine him, in order to build his faith in God and in God's goodness. And that's why at the end of the story, Joseph has been humbled. He's been changed. He's a man who can see God's hand and say, you meant evil, but God meant good to bring about salvation. This is a story about the hidden plan of God, the God's at work in trials, even the difficult ones. God is at work even in the times when you have prayer turned downs. You pray and God doesn't answer in the ways that you had prayed. God's at work when you cry out and it seems that no one is listening. All these things are bought, brought to you in the hand of a God who is good, who's working to burn off the dross in your life in order to bring you forth as gold. And God's at work in this story. He's at work in all things. He turns even trials, even death, into a resurrection for His people. We have a God who arranges all things and uses all things, even evil things, so they work for our good and for His glory. You can rest in that. That's great comfort to our souls. Because so much that happens in our lives seems so chaotic and so out of control. And we ask ourselves the question, where is God? He's there. He's there when you're in Dothan and it's the pit. He's there when you're in Dothan and it's armies of angels and chariots of fire. He's there in all circumstances. And thirdly, I want us to see the hidden ways of grace in this story. In many ways, this merges with my last point. But these events are not random events, just like the events in your life are not random events. The trials and difficult circumstances that God brings to you, the, the, the kids that He gives you that you can't understand and can't seem to figure out or communicate with, whose personalities seem so different than yours that you can't get on the same wavelength, uh, God is at work in those circumstances. He's at work. All these things are mercies from God. Your trials with your children, with your relationships, they're all mercies from God. If you never had a trial, you'd never have a reason to cry out to God in the midst of great difficulty. If you were never sinned against, you would never have to seek God for comfort to enable you to, to stand. If you never had to acknowledge your sin and your failure and, and the bad fruit that it produces, if, if you never had a prayer turned down, you would never learn how to agonize with God in prayer. God uses all these things for our good. And there's a pattern to how God works. God brings the greatest displays of His power and grace through the deepest pits of suffering. Can I repeat that? God brings the greatest displays of His power and grace through the deepest pit of suffering. Suffering is the refiner's fire. That's what 1 Peter talks about. 1 Peter talks about the fact that God is refining us. He says, even in these trials you greatly rejoice because these trials are refining you so that you'll be brought forth as pure gold. And if you think about a, a, a miner who mines ore 
He doesn't leave the ore in the ore state because ore is unattractive, ore is not strong, it's not beautiful, but he refines the ore because the fires of refining bring forth the beauty and the strength in the ore. And that's what God does with us. He's mined us from the mass of humanity, uh, but we're still ore, and he makes us like his son. He, he refines us, and he, he brings beauty and strength to us. The only thing that will enable you to face suffering with joy is the full embrace of the fact that the Father has set his love on you. So that even in suffering, even in the most intense kind of suffering, it'll never separate you from the love of God. In fact, God is working through those trials. Just as he's working through the trials in this story, he's working through the trials of the famine and all that this family went through in order to change these brothers. So over a period of 20 years, they are radically transformed from the men that they were in chapter 37 in this chapter. He's working at Joseph so that this boy who is proud and spoiled and overindulged by his father is humbled and becomes a godly man. And see, during, during our times of trials, we have to remind ourselves that God is at work. There's this big picture of what God is doing. And one of the problems we have is that during our trials, our guilt is fallen human beings. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you don't do the right thing. You know that you're a disappointment even to yourself, let alone to others. And because our, our, our guilt is so deeply burned into our psyche, we immediately begin to think about our guilt and what else could we expect in, in light of how bad we are. But if you have the assurance of God's love, if you have the assurance that we sang about today that our sins have been laid on Christ. Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. We are delivered from our sins. God looks on us not as wicked, sinful people, but He looks on us through the lens of the righteousness of Christ and sees us as His beloved children in whom He is well pleased because Christ lived without sin for us and died as a sacrifice for our sin. And if we, if we have that assurance that God loves us, we can remind ourselves that God is at work for our good to bring us forth as gold even through the experience of suffering. You might be thinking, I would love to think that God is working in all things for my good. How could that be true? You see, the hidden ways of grace in Joseph's life were mysterious to Joseph and his brothers. We don't expect suffering to be the way to glory, but that's the way that God works. Centuries later, there was one who came to his own, and his own did not receive him. There was one who was betrayed by those who were closest to him. He was sold for silver. He was stripped of his clothing. He was left alone to die. He cried out in the darkness, why? And there was no answer, only silence. There was one who was literally flung into the deepest pit for us. Joseph was turned into one who could be the Savior for Israel through weakness and pain and suffering. Joseph had no choice. His suffering was thrust upon him. He didn't choose the suffering. But Jesus Christ 
suffered for us voluntarily. Voluntarily, he left the glories of heaven. Voluntarily, he became a man. Voluntarily, he entered into the suffering of this broken world. Without ever sinning, fulfilling all righteousness, but he suffered for us. And because he suffered for us, the suffering that we experience will not crush us to powder because he suffered for us. And in his suffering, there's deliverance for us. Suffering doesn't have to make us insensitive, hardened people that somehow are trying to, to, to gut it out. Suffering can humble us and break us, but it also can strengthen us because we find grace and strength in Christ. And he refines us and builds us and strengthens us through suffering. And when you come to Jesus for forgiveness and mercy and receive the assurance of his love, you can face anything that God sends to you because you have the assurance that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Christianity is the only faith that has a God who has suffered. A God who has faced the darkness. Jesus, the Son of God, experienced the fury of hell for us. He experienced it fully for you and for me and for every soul that will ever trust in Him and believe. And we can be forgiven. We can know that even in our deepest pits of suffering, God is with us and he's working out a plan that is hidden from us, but a plan that is for his glory and for our everlasting good. I think about this story, I often think Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the one who came into his own, who did not receive him. He was betrayed he was sold for silver. He was stripped of his clothing. He was thrown into the pit. But he's been brought out of the pit into the palace for you and me. And he's been placed at the right hand of the Father where he can bestow blessings on his unworthy brothers. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> That's what he's doing for us. That's what he's doing for us in our lives. That's what he's doing for us right now in the sanctifying benefits of a service of worship where we've sung the praise of God and heard God's word, God is making us like Christ. He's refining us. He's purifying us. He's bestowing blessings on unworthy brothers. If you trust him and believe in him, you can live in the assurance that not only are your sins forgiven, but even the deepest pits God brings you to will ultimately bring you into the palace where you will live forever in his presence. Praise his holy name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.